So our sermon series has been titled Becoming His Church, and again, that's, that's what I hope is the goal of all of us who consider ourselves part of Wildlife Baptist Church, that we want to be His church. Um, we don't just want to be a church. We don't want to be Wildlife Baptist Church. We don't want to be the church that's been here for 60, 70 years, and you know, we're not trying to be the latest, you know, fad church that comes along. We want to be His church. And, and looking in the book of Acts, you know, we see these, 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 these foundational characteristics of what a church is, and we get it from the very, very beginning. And, you know, what have we seen? We've seen the idea of obedience, obedience to God's Word. Um, you know, one of the things that I'm always confident in in our church and, and still confident in our denomination is that even though we're not going to get everything right, we're going to be on course of what is right because we stay, we stay rooted in God's Word. Understanding, studying, applying, living God's Word, it's, it's, it's who we are. And um, I, I can't emphasize enough of how important that is in the, in the world today. I think we're going to see more and more individual churches and entire denominations just lose their way because they've loosed from the moorings of Scripture. But I also have seen this, the Holy Spirit coming. This isn't just, hey, we're going to learn and do our best. Like, no, the Holy Spirit empowers His church. And the Holy Spirit takes what we do that we think is just ordinary and helps it become something far more. Helps it to, to have eternal dividends that we may not even know about. We may not see the difference that we make. You know, we read about these, these people in the early church and did all of them know, did all of them know what was going to be happening in the next few decades, in the next few centuries? But there's, God took what they offered and with the power of the Holy Spirit, Christianity spread. And we also saw the, the characteristic of witness, that if we're going to be his church, if we're going to become more and more his church, then we need to be telling people. And we need to be telling people what Christ has done in our lives, what Christ is doing in our church, and, and how it's possible. And then we see this, the, the community, the community of faith that's bound by this, this common goal of, of being obedient, bound by the Spirit, with this common task of being a witness, and yet they're united like no other group. They're united like no other group. There's, there's no good reason for them to be together, and yet they're together. There's no good reason for them to love one another, and yet they love one another. And what we're seeing unveil, and we're going to see more of it this morning, is, is it's moving farther and farther from people who are like them. It's not just building a church around people like me. No, 
they move farther and farther to people who are in many ways unlike them. And as we look at today's lesson, as we look at the Bible study, I mean, the, the Bible verses that we're going to look at today, you know, one of the things I think that's always tempting to us, and, and, and it's actually can become a real problem in, in our Christianity, and that's when we, we begin to, to kind of narrow Christianity down to just my relationship with God or your relationship with God. And we, we narrow it in different ways. Uh, one of the ways people narrow it is they, you know, they, you might hear people say like, like, this is my personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And what they mean by that is it's my private relationship with Jesus Christ. Like, like you, you have no connection to my relationship with Jesus Christ. This is between me and God. That's not what we find in Scripture. We don't find in Scripture anything that kind of encourages some kind of, all of us have kind of like a private, you know, secret line to God. I don't know if any of you guys are old enough I don't want to admit that I might be, uh, that especially in certain rural places in the United States, when you picked up your phone, you could hear everybody else in the community because it was a party line. Everybody. So, of course, you were, you know, a little careful about what you actually said. Some of you are like, how could you function that way? Um, I'm not sure how people did. But... You, you need to understand that when we become Christians, be, being part of the church is not an optional thing. It's not something that we choose. Being, being part of the body of Christ, that's, that's what we're actually joining when we become Christians. We're not simply having a relationship with Jesus Christ. We are, and that's hugely important. I don't want to in any way dismiss that. But for some reason, something has crept into especially, you know, the kind of American mentality of, of you know, rugged individualism, that that's also my Christianity. That my Christianity is my private relationship between me and God. And that's really what's most important. The problem with that way of thinking is that we actually shrink God. We shrink our world. We shrink what, you know, what we think is, is, is happening, what's important. And when we shrink the world, we shrink who God is, at least who we understand God is. And, you know, we, we sometimes hear about these other cultures that had their own little, um, they didn't just have, like, the big deities. They also had their little family deities. Like, you could go to anybody's house, and they'd have a little shrine with their own personal family deities. And we look at that, and we go, like, man, that's, you know, that's so superstition and all this other stuff. That's crazy. I think a lot of Christians when they create their little personal private relationship with God, 
and they shrink their understanding of God. They basically create their own version of God. More or less related to the Bible, but getting rid of the parts that we either don't understand or we don't really like. We may really like the, the holy God, you know, the God that's kind of got everything in order and, you know, has, you know, got the rules and the rituals, follow those. And some of us, we like that God. That's the God we want to respond to. Because, you know, he leaves alone a lot of the other areas of, of our lives. And so we want the holy God. But then there's other people that, you know, they don't like the holy God because, you know, he's, he's got rules and he's got rituals. We, we want the God that, who's love. We want the God that just wants to hang out with us and say, hey, everything's cool, man. And that's our God, that when I fall down and I get an owie, he's going to kiss my owie and he's going to make me feel better. And I like that God. I like that God that just says, hey, everybody, just love each other and just, you know, everything will be okay. Well, neither one of those gods is the God we find revealed in Scripture. But when we shrink our world, when we shrink everything that we see, we shrink our understanding of God. We don't need a big God if we have a small world. And we do this for different reasons. And sometimes it's just because we don't understand. Sometimes it seems like it's overwhelming. But let me tell you, there's nothing more overwhelming than when we shrink our world. What we also do is we, we, we increase the size of our mountains. Our mountains become huge when our world is small. They become what seem to be the biggest, the, you know, the biggest things in the world. Our challenges can seem overwhelming. Our enemies can seem like there's no, they're, they're invincible, there's nothing we can do. We create giants out of ants. It's a dangerous way to live. I, I talked with a person who can, you know, considered himself a Christian at one point, but one of the reasons he had lost his way was because he had, he had faced some personal difficulties in his life and, and in his family. And because he had made the world small, he couldn't understand how God could allow that kind of suffering in his family because the world was small. We lose the word I talk about so much here. We lose context. When we make the world small, we think this is all there is. This is the context. And we lose God's context. We lose the kingdom context. Well, we're, we've been going through this 
story in the book of Acts, and the book of Acts is talking about the church growing, and, it, and we can see even the church it, in, in this first century is kind of struggling with this. We, we can see like Jerusalem, where the church starts in Jerusalem, and things are awesome, things are great, and people are just loving being together. They love each other, they love God's word, they love worshiping. Life has never been better in so many ways. So much so that they have begun to think this is what the kingdom is. But they had forgotten that Jesus had told them, you're not gonna just stay in Jerusalem. This needs to go throughout the whole world. So persecution comes on the church and it kind of shakes them up. And now they go out, not because they think it's a good idea and they have a great plan, it's because they're forced to, but as we talked about, they're forced to, but as they go, they are continuing to share the gospel wherever they go. They're not running scared. They're running and continue, continue to do ministry. And then last couple weeks, we've been looking at this incredible story that you know, we get, we're introduced to Saul. And the first time we see Saul, Saul is, is there like holding or taking care of the, of the cloaks of the, of the men who, who killed Stephen stoned him to death. They're holding the cloaks and he's standing by and he's approving of it. Later on, we meet him in the story and, and he's not only so upset at the Christians that he wants to, to get rid of all the ones in Jerusalem or get them thrown into prison or, or just intimidate them to, to recant and give up their faith. He, he's, he wants to go and chase them across the, the rest of Judea and beyond. And that's what he's doing. And it talks about how he has these hateful, murderous feelings inside of him. We're gonna read later on that, that when he's thinking back to that time in his life, that, that he knows that when 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 the religious leaders were choosing whether to let go some of the Christians, punish them, or put them to death, he voted that they be put to death. And then what happens? He meets Jesus on the way. On the way to Damascus, he meets Jesus, and his life is forever changed. In an instant, he goes from someone filled with hate to someone filled with love. And it's not a passive love like, hey, everything's groovy, I got love. No, it's a love that's, that's courageous and brave where he begins to go because he knows. Remember, he knows how much the religious leaders hate these Christians. He knows what they're planning, but he doesn't hide. He goes to the very places where he would have gone to arrest people and he goes there and he starts talking about Jesus. He knows what he faces better than anyone else. Amazing. And we read last week about how this ministry 
you know, it's not without its hiccups, it's not without its problems, but it keeps growing, keeps expanding. But then Luke seems to like just kind of shift gears here, just change, and he starts talking about Peter again. But Luke has a reason for this. He has a reason to leave us with Saul, where Saul is, you know, in Saul's ministry, and now he's up in Tarsus having to escape Jerusalem. And in verse 32 of chapter 9, it says this, Now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died, and when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them, and when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed, and turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. Now, when we read these stories, you know, it's important that we know what's happened up until then. Up until this point, um, the pattern that's kind of been established in Acts is that there's usually some kind of sign, okay? The Holy Spirit coming upon them, them speaking in languages they hadn't learned, um, some kind of healing, something like that. And then there's the proclamation of the word, and after that, there is a response by the, by the people, and then the establishment of a church in that area. Well, at this point, Luke is no longer giving us all those details because he's assuming that we know the pattern. And so we get these two stories at the beginning, and we're going to be introduced to this third story. But the two stories that we get at the beginning, this story of, of the healing of the paralyzed man, and then of, of Tabitha. And what we see is we see there's the sign, and then there, there's the evidence of the sign, but what we don't hear is the proclamation of the gospel. And we, we know that the gospel was, was going to be proclaimed and that they're not responding just to a sign like, ooh, look, there's a healing, I'm going to believe. And so we have that pattern. 
that's here. But the big point I want us to see is that here's Saul and this story of Saul, and Saul's going to dominate the rest of the book of Acts. But we have this little section here that talks about Peter. It's about a chapter or so long. And so you have this shift to Peter. And one of the reasons I think that that's there is to remind us of something, to remind the readers in the first century of something, that, that what God is doing, that what God is doing is not just what he's doing through Saul. That at the same time God is doing something with Saul, he's doing something with lots of other people. Lots. And I think one of the big takeaways from this is that it reminds us that God's plan is bigger than we can know. God's plan is bigger than we can know. You see, when I make my world small, I might feel really good about what I'm doing. I used to tell people, well, I still tell them, that, that my dad was the first megachurch pastor because we had a church in Oklahoma that had about 120 to 150 people. And you might go, that doesn't sound like a megachurch. Well, there were only 600 people in the town. 25% of the people were coming to our church. You tell me any church that has 25%. They don't. If we had that same percentage here, there would be 250,000 people here. But if all my dad thought was, here's this small town and we're doing pretty well for this small town and this is all the world that there is, he, he, really, he really wouldn't have a really good perspective and, and he never thought that. But that's the danger. The danger is when things are going well, we think they're going a lot better if we have a small world. And when things are going bad or when we're facing challenges, we think they're a lot worse than they are if we have a small world. One of Paul's greatest compliments to churches, one of his greatest compliments to churches, you can read it in his letters, and he'd usually write it to churches, sometimes he'd write it to individuals, but he would say this, your faithfulness in a difficult situation is known by the rest of the Christians, and it's an encouragement to them. He was reminding some of these people who were in the midst of persecution, in the midst of losing their businesses, losing their homes, some losing their lives, and he was reminding them that your faithfulness in that situation, it's more than just what you're facing there. This is connected to work that's spreading across the known world. And we're reminded here that God works in many places with many different people at the same time. We're reminded that no matter how great we might think, think things are going here or how poorly we might think things are going here, that this isn't the only place. These, we're not the only people that God is working through and using. 
God's plan is bigger than we can know. He has a kingdom plan. His whole purpose for creating anything was the establishment of his kingdom. Its kingdom has this aspect of right now in this moment, but it's also global. His kingdom isn't just in my heart. His kingdom isn't just in our church. But we also need to understand that his kingdom also transcends time. We not only look to the past and see how God has reigned in the past, we're also going to look to the future. We're part of his plan, but his plan is more than us. More than us. His plan is bigger than we can know. Jesus, in the Gospel of John, he, he, tells his, he tells his followers, his disciples, his close disciples, he says, I'm not going to call you servants anymore. You're friends. And what he means by that is he says, you know, if you're just my servant and I'm your Lord, I just tell you what to do and you do it without question. But I want to treat you as a friend. I'm still going to tell you what you need to do, but I want to tell you why. I'm going to help you understand it. That it's not just do this to do it, no questions asked. And so God does tell us, but he doesn't tell us everything. And it's not because he doesn't want to tell us everything, but it's because if he told us everything, we either wouldn't understand it or it would overwhelm us. He tells us what we need to know. He tells us what we can know. And some people, they have a problem with that, but you know what that problem is? The problem is, is their pride. Because they're like, come on God, just tell me everything, I can take it. And you think you can, but you can't. If you were to think about the most tragic events that you personally have experienced, and if 20 years ago God told you that event is going to happen, and it's not just going to happen, it's important that it happens because part of it is going to, is going to end up in these, these incredible things happening because of it. You might go, uh, no thanks, God. No thanks. I don't want that. He tells us what we need. He tells us what we can know. Some of us, we just, we, we can only take in so much. And, and I, I actually kind of respect people who get that. Sometimes when I talk like kind of theological with people, people will be like, Man, I, I, can't, I, can't, I can't get that. Just tell me what to do. You know, <laughs> just give me some directions. Just, you know, you know give, give me some advice. But, you know, the, the deeper understanding they can't connect with. 
Now, I happen to believe they can over time if they try, but I, I respect the fact that, that they're saying, at this point in time, I can't take this in. And we don't like this. We like to think that, that everything we know and everything we see is all there is to know and all there is to see. And then we're reminded that God is infinite and God is eternal and we are not. God is infinite, God is eternal, we are not. His kingdom, his kingdom comes from someone who is infinite and eternal. We're always going to be limited in our understanding and yet God still wants us to understand he wants us to understand what we can know. He wants us to know what we can do. But we need to remind ourselves of this as the scriptures reminding us here that that's not just, just Saul out there being that, that lone ranger Christian out there just charging throughout you know, the Roman Empire, spreading the gospel wherever he goes. That's kind of the movie Hollywood version no, a lot of times when Saul shows up in a city, there's already Christians there. We know that we just had read about Philip, and then we're reading about Peter again here. And we know the other apostles, they're also going out and ministering. God's works in many places with many different people at the same time. And you know, when I think about a point like that, I think like, that's, that's so, so simple. It's like I don't even want to insult you with that point, that it's so simple, it's so basic. But the fact that I forget it sometimes makes me think that maybe some of you forget it too sometimes. That we make our world small we make God's plan small, and we don't realize that it's bigger than we can know. But I also want you to see this. We see it in these two stories. Because these two stories, yes, they are signs. They are signs, but they're also healings. They're healings where, where Peter is going in and Peter is, is helping First of all, this man, Aeneas, and, and again, he's been in bedridden for eight years, and then now he can walk. But I think the second story, which in some ways parallels the first story, but the second story, I think, is even, is even more like powerful to me, because it's talking about this woman, Tabitha. And it talks about how, you know, she's, she's a believer, but she's full of good works and acts of charity. And in fact, if we go down a bit um, to verse 39, we can see that one of the things she did was she took care of the widows. Now, we're assuming she's not a widow, but she's taking care of the widows. And if you remember, what we talk about in that time is that widows in that culture were among the most vulnerable, most impoverished people in their culture because their, if their husband had died, 
they didn't have any means of support. They often had to live even day to day. And the, you know, Jesus makes special mention of the widows. James, later on, will say true religion is taking care of the widows and the orphans. Earlier in Acts, we read about the widows and how some of the widows, what, what the church did, which was just amazing, was part of when the church came together is they said, we need to take care of these widows. And so they would give them food. And here's Tabitha. And she dies, and this person who is so instrumental in helping the widows is gone, and they're weeping, and they're showing that one of the things she did for them was she made them clothes. And this is a reminder to me that even though God's plan is bigger than we can know, God still cares about all of us, and he cares about each of us. God's big plan doesn't mean like he can't see the details. He can't see each of us. His big plan doesn't mean that, that he just thinks of us as just, you know, things that can be lost and found and whatever, recreated. No, there's this concern about all of us this concern about each of us. Luke could have just told the story of Aeneas. He could have just told the story of Tabitha and not included the part about her doing these good works and acts of charity and not included the part about the widows. He could have left all that out, but I think he leaves this in because, because what happens is in the early part of the book of Acts, we're constantly hearing about the gospel being proclaimed, the church growing, but then the church loving and caring for each other. But it always says like the church, the community, and, 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 and eventually we hear about the deacons. But here we get this example, this specific example of Tabitha someone who was going to use whatever gifts or whatever resources she had to help the most needy people in her church. You know, last week I said, if we're really going to be his church, we need a bunch of Barnabases. We need to be Barnabas to each other. We need to have Barnabases who, who help us, support us, encourage us. We need that. Well, let me tell you, we also need Tabithas. Now, if you prefer to go by the Greek name Dorcas, we need more Dorcases. But I'm going to go with Tabitha because I think it sounds better. Um, they both mean gazelle or female deer. But we need more Tabithas. We need people who, who are looking to, to those who are, who are most in need. Not just in our society, but in our church. And we're caring for one another. In this case, the widows, you know, they needed, they had physical needs. They didn't have, you know, they didn't have 
means. They didn't have food. They didn't have money. Plus, they're not, you know, like how we are, where we have closets full of clothes. A lot of people in this day had the clothes that they were wearing. Maybe one other set. She's meeting a need. And of all the healings that, that, that Luke could have told about, he tells about Tabitha. And we just sang, how great is our God, how great is our God. And our God is, is as I said, he's infinite, he's omnipotent, he's omniscient, he's all these things. And what's great about it is that God doesn't have to do what I sometimes have to do. God doesn't have to choose between the one and the many. I do, you do, because we're limited. You know, we, we, we constantly have to think like, you know, do I care about this one person or do I care about everybody? Pastors face this all the time. Pastors face this all the time because they may have a very needy church member or a church member that's going through certain struggles in their lives and you need to be there and you need to help them. But at the same time, there's the rest of the church. And I'm not called to be pastor of just one person, but I am called to be pastor of that person. And there's choices that have to be made. But I actually think that's because we have the wrong concept of church and the wrong concept of ministry. Because we think that ministry is done by the pastor. And that is so not what the Bible teaches. Seven years ago when I came here, before I came here, I told the church, don't ask me to be your pastor if you want me to be the minister. The Bible is very clear. You minister to each other. I help equip you to do that. The, the role of the pastors and the teachers is to equip the people to minister to one another. See, when we do that, we don't have to choose between the one and the many. But when we put it all on one person, then that person is always choosing. But God doesn't have to choose. God has this global plan going on. He's, he's seeing his, the gospel of Jesus Christ just rapidly moving across the Roman Empire. You know, churches being formed everywhere. And yet, Luke takes the time, and God takes the time to go to Joppa and help not just Tabitha, but all of these widows. Pretty amazing. And then the last point is just what we see there in just that introduction of this third story, which is gonna be the big story. So Luke has kind of ramped it up with these three stories, all of them connected, all of them related, all of them showing something about Peter who's moving farther and farther from Jerusalem. And then it says, at Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. Cornelius is a Roman. He's a Gentile. He's a soldier in the Roman army. 
He's an officer. To us, that's a no big deal. To Peter, was everything that who he was ethnically, everything that he would see as an enemy. The Romans had conquered his people. They not only conquered his people, they enslaved people. They executed leaders. They put their own leaders in place. Now they had Roman soldiers there who were a constant reminder that, that Rome was in charge and Israel was not. This was the, the feared and hated Roman army. This is, you know, the, the Roman army that had already put down different insurrections and when it put those down, it put them down brutally. This is the Roman army that had special privileges among the people. Jesus talks about some of these in the Gospels. He talks about how a, a Roman soldier could just come up to a Jewish person and say, carry my pack. And you were obligated to carry that person's pack for a mile. Romans, not just the powerful occupying army, but they, they were also Gentiles. And that was enough. It was enough to say, you know, God is allowing the unclean Gentiles to not just be in our city, but to be in power over us. Luke introduces Cornelius. You can probably guess what's about to happen. What's about to happen is God's going to tell Peter to go to your enemy and share the gospel. And I think that's one this point that we're going to elaborate on next week. It's a huge thing that God prepares his people to love their enemies with the gospel. God prepares his people to love their enemies with the gospel. Peter has been prepared along the way. In fact, Peter is kind of paralleling the church being prepared. Remember, Peter, back in the gospels, you know the Peter that is going to take on the temple soldiers by pulling out his little dagger and cutting off a guy's ear? That guy? That guy who said, when Jesus said, I need to die, Peter goes, no way, that ain't gonna happen. The guy who thought he was big enough and tough enough to lead Jesus' army against the Romans, that guy. That guy who thought when Jesus was talking about the kingdom, he, meant that it, he thought that it meant somehow Jesus was gonna drive the Romans out of Palestine. That guy. That guy, a few months later, is going to be sitting, talking to a Roman soldier, a Roman officer, sharing the gospel. 
I don't think we, we really get how radical that is. We see the change of Saul. Saul's walking along, he wants to murder people, big light, boom, he changes, all of a sudden, the people he wants to murder, he loves. The people that wanted him to murder those people, he loves them too, he loves everybody. We see it, it happens in a moment. Peter's, his change is also gonna be dramatic. From a guy who thought that's what the kingdom was, to a guy who thought like, okay, 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 I get it now, Jesus, you told us now we're not going to overthrow, but we're going to share, we're going to be your witnesses. And remember, we talked about this, that Peter's concept of being a witness was probably to be a witness to other Jewish people. That's what he thought. But then what happens? The church doesn't just reach other Jewish people. First of all, it starts reaching the, the Jewish people that were actually more like the Romans. They were just ethnically Jewish, but they were Roman in every other sense. And then the church goes to the Samaritans, the Samaritans who, were, who thought they were, the, they were the chosen people. They were the true Jewish people. They were the true followers of, of God. The people that, that the Jewish people hated, and all of a sudden, Christianity goes there. And every step along the way, Peter's there. Peter's there. God is bringing him along. But he still has in his mind, I think, that this, is, this gospel is for Jewish people or part Jewish people. And then Cornelius comes along. And all of a sudden, he's going to know that God wasn't saying go into all the world and find all the Jewish people and convert them to Christianity. He's saying, no, go tell everyone. Make disciples of everyone, even those hated Romans. Those hated Romans. And we know what happens along the way to Peter. First of all, his pride has to be broken, and it is. And then later, the Holy Spirit comes upon him. And then he goes out, and he's, and he's boldly doing what he knows. And God is preparing him. And I, and I think Peter is a great example of why God doesn't tell us everything all at once. Because Peter would not have been able to process. The Peter that thought Jesus was there to drive the Romans out would not have been able to handle what Jesus was really there to do. I don't think God tells us everything all at once because, because even if he could somehow process it, we're filled with fear. Most of us don't have enemies that we are around right now that want to kill us. Maybe you do. If you do, let me know. Uh, maybe we can protect you. But most of you cannot. You, you don't have that. But if you did, and then all of a sudden you were told before you were ready, you're going to need to go share the gospel with them, you, you may just be afraid. You might be like Jonah. When Jonah was told to go tell the, the Ninevites those cruel Ninevites to repent, you might try to run away. 
You might just give up and go, sorry, God, it's not the kind of gospel I want. I want the gospel that says, love my friends and my family and people who are nice to me, not mean people, not people that want to kill me. Or God might, if God told us everything all at once, we might say, okay, God, thanks, thanks for the goal, I got this. And then we try and do it all on our own. But here's Peter being prepared really over years, but especially in the last few months up until this point. And he's being prepared, and he's going to be prepared even more next week to love his enemies with the gospel. You know, as we just close to this morning, the question is, how is God preparing you? If you're a believer in Christ, how is he preparing you? How is he preparing us as a church? Who is he preparing us to reach? It's easy to say everyone. Yeah, okay, everyone, right? But everyone is also a way to hide. Who's your enemies? Maybe you don't have any. Who's someone who who would love to see you be hurt? Maybe you don't know. Maybe a softer way of thinking about this, which is still not great. Who Who do you have prejudices against? What group of people? You know, sometimes we grow up in a world where we inherited prejudices. They, you know, they were just there. And, you know, we saw them. We don't know how they got there. They were there. It's from generations back. But most of us have been living in Hawaii during a time when a new prejudice has, arise, has arisen. And the reason I know this is because bef- before when I lived in Hawaii, these people weren't even present here. And that's the prejudice that's growing among a lot of people in Hawaii against Micronesians. Do, 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 you, do you struggle with that? I don't know. Everybody struggles with something. But I can tell you that while God would prepares us to, to share the gospel with everyone, I think he also prepares us to share the gospel with those who are most unlike us, those who are our enemies, those who we have prejudices against. Because there is no greater testimony of love for God or love for your enemy is that you would share the gospel with your enemy. You share the gospel with your family, you share the gospel with a friend, that's great. I'm not going to tell you don't do that. But to share your gospel, to share the gospel with your enemy, to share the gospel with those who want to and can hurt you, there is no greater testimony of love that we can do.